Told you so, but I bet you wish you were here. Bet you wish you were here. And now the end is near, and so I face the final episode. Sang that at a karaoke competition one time in the north side in Cork. Came third. Just. You know, if you're kind of doing a table quiz or anything and it comes up. Now, guys, if you're in bits, get up off the ground, dry your eyes and throw the dirty Kleenexes out the window because, you know, clearly this podcast has gone very, very well. Uh, Very well. And I think we can safely say we're going to be hearing an awful lot more from me. (laughs) I do like to laugh at my own jokes. Occasionally, my teenage daughter pulls me up on it. But I always say to her, look, love. If you can't laugh at yourself, how can you laugh at somebody else? Uh, just a little bit of free-fathering for you. And that, my friends, was potentially the final bit of fluff of the whole series. We're at our last episode, our last guest, and the end of the unionism subsection. First, we had Karen Setharaman, the wonderful Karen, who you might describe as a lapsed or former unionist. Then we had the very, very funny Ian Malcolm, whose defence of the union and the border centred on him having extra crisps and chocolate choice. And finally, I am joined by an Ulster unionist politician who gives a very fair, reasonable and hopeful defence of the union and vision for its future. I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by Ian Marshall. Ian Marshall is an Ulster Unionist Party politician. He was formerly the president of the Ulster Farmers Union. He has an understanding not just of northern politics but of southern politics too because he was elected to the Shannad down south in 2018, the first unionist politician to be elected to the Oireachtas since the 1930s. We get into that, as well as a whole load of other things, and I ask him all the usual questions that you're freaking sick of hearing now at this point. But you certainly won't be sick of his answers because I literally have never heard them before. That is to say, a progressive, reasonable defence of the union. It's something that I really wanted for this podcast, and Ian Marshall absolutely delivers it. And before now I get out of the way of it and let you just enjoy the interview, I just want to pay tribute to the man for an Ulster Unionist politician seeking re-election in the not-too-distant future to talk to an uppity so-called comedian Irish Republican from Cork. I think that takes an awful lot of balls. It would have been totally understandable for him to be risk-averse and tell me to bog off as many Unionist Conservatives did in Wales and Scotland. And I'm certainly very glad that Ian told me to bog on because we had a great old chat. He was so generous with his time, couldn't do enough yet, and I think he comes across so well. And the final thing I'll say, and I absolutely promise then I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy the interview, is talking to Ian and how sound he is, and Ian Malcolm and Karen, and talking to nationalists and Republicans as well in the North. And obviously I've said this before, but as you know, I love repeating myself. I'm just reflecting on myself over the year and the sketches, and I just wonder, was it really a good idea to do six, seven, eight, nine, ten sketches where the punch line is kind of loyalism and the predicament it finds itself in. Am I effectively kicking a man when he's down in the tricky position that loyalism unionism finds itself in right now? And could I have done more to send up Republicans? I mean, we're just as ridiculous on our day. I'd say the old answers there now will be yes and yes. Look at, I hopefully am learning all the time. I remain very, very, very teachable. I hope I'm growing. I'm doing the best I can. 
and speaking to people like Ian Marshall, fantastic representatives of their community, certainly helps to deepen my understanding and respect for said community. Now, at this point, guys, I'm going to shut up because I'm honestly, I'm gone a bit bono. I'm gone a bit bono on you guys. I'm picturing myself between two politicians and I'm raising their arms, the fucking flashes of cameras. I've lost the plot. I'll shut up. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Marshall. Ian Marshall is a 53-year-old person who lives, who grew up in South Armagh, who was a farmer, first and foremost, living on a family farm. He was a president of a farmer's union, who works in the Institute for Global Food Security in Queen's University, was a senator in Shannadaran, and now has joined Doug Beattie on the Ulster Unionist Party journey. Wonderful. I mean, this is a big question that I would love to just get that sense of, and I'm sure our listeners would as well. As a unionist, growing up in a unionist household in County Armagh, how did you express your unionism? Could you explain to somebody who doesn't understand what it meant to be a unionist growing up? I suppose, Tag, the interesting thing is that growing up as a unionist in South Armagh was, for a child, it was just growing up because everything was actually normal. There was nothing abnormal or odd about it because that was home for us. I was very lucky to grow up on a love and care and family on a family farm in South Armagh. I grew up where we were schooled separately, so I went to Protestant primary school, Protestant grammar school. Most kids didn't actually meet people from the other side until they went to third level education to university. So for us, Growing up, that was actually very normal. The, probably the one abnormal thing, which I thought was quite funny, I remember being on a school trip to England. We looked up in the sky and there was a helicopter and all the kids were going, oh, whoa, whoa, so it's a helicopter. But all the children from my school looked up and said, well, is that a Wessex or is it a Chinook or a Lynx or a Gazelle? Because we all become experts on helicopters by that stage. But what's quite interesting was that as a unionist family, we never felt it really necessary to express unionism and it's interesting you say how do you express unionism because we're proud of who we were it's who we were it's what we believed in and it never felt necessary to express it or do anything different because we're always pretty comfortable in our identity and i suppose it was brought home to me about a month ago my father passed away about a month ago a eulogy at his funeral and my brother said about my dad he said you know he's a man of few words but usually what he had to say was worth listening to and i always remember as an 18 year old wanting to hang a flag out here and show everyone around that this was my politics. We were Ulster Unionists. We were proud of it. And my dad said, look, hold on, step back a minute. He says, we live in a mixed community. He says, we don't need to hang a flag out to prove or express our unionism. We are Ulster Unionists. That's who we are. Wow. We don't need that. You know, so I think that, that that was something that probably that carried through for myself and for the rest of the family. Later life. It actually reminds me of Martin McGuinness's thing about not needing to interfere with someone else's Britishness. He was comfortable enough in his own Irishness. Like it reminds me of that, yeah. that concept. Yeah, that I mean, yeah. that seems to be the future. Whether we have a United Ireland or we have two jurisdictions, hopefully working together, like that spirit seems to be the future. Yeah, I'd love to get your perspective on this particular Tory government as a unionist do you feel let down by this Tory government or what could you share some of your perspectives on that please I think when we look at the politics where we are at the moment I think probably it's fair to say that there's lots of people are disillusioned with politics with the executive and the assembly in Northern Ireland with Westminster and with Dublin for that matter with Brussels so there's a lot of disillusionment but politics widespread such widespread I think what I feel more about the politics moment, I feel betrayed by a process that gives space and opportunity to misinformation, 
to misleading information. And I'd have rather had a conversation that was based on facts and evidence. And that would have allowed people to make informed decisions. It would allow people to take a position on the reality of the situation and the reality, I suppose, of the consequences of that situation. Because let's be honest, you know, the UK has issues, as everywhere does. Europe, the European Union has, has major issues at the moment. But fundamentally, you know, we all have to work together to try and work out solutions to these problems. And I think that's important that we do that. And I think that it doesn't serve any purpose really to point finger and point blame at people. We are where we are. We need pragmatism and we need leadership and we need solutions to some of the issues we're dealing with at the moment. Okay. I just wonder, do they understand, not just the Tory government, but does the average English person really understand Ireland? I mean, even forget unionism for a second. I was talking to the radio host, James O'Brien in the UK, and he was kind of saying that he kind of felt that your average English person, they don't get it. They don't get loyalism. And I think by extension, I just don't know, do they get Ireland much, really? Would you want to say on that? I would completely agree with you, but there's an interesting parallel that runs with that. I live in Armagh, approximately 80 miles from Dublin, and I served in the, in the Shannon for 2020. The lack of understanding between Belfast and Dublin, never mind London and Dublin or Belfast, is frightening. Yes. And there is a genuine lack of understanding about the subtleties, about the nuances, about the culture, the identity questions, that people think because they pick up sound bites from the media that they know what's going on. But there's a, there's a serious lack of understanding. So I think there's a process we all need to engage in to understand each other. Until I went to Leinster House that I started to realise the things that mattered to people in Dublin, to people in Cork, in Waterford, in Wexford, that I didn't actually realise before. But then how would I? Because, you know, we, we operate a Belfast bubble, a Dublin bubble, a London bubble. So how, how would we understand those things? So we have a lot to do to really understand each other. And if you were someone in London this morning and you look across the Irish Sea and you see Northern Ireland with 1.8 million people, you see the Republic with just under 5 million, and you're living in a city and a country of 64 million people, it's not on your radar very much. So to expect those people to understand Ireland, the Irish question, or Northern Ireland, is probably a bit unreasonable, because why would they? No, to be fair, that's a great point. And I even would echo what you're saying insofar as I think people in the South don't even understand Northern Nationalists, let alone Northern Unionists. You know what I mean? That's that's one bridge that I've been trying to cross as well a little bit, like with some of the stuff that I've done. But, but yeah, no, that's a great point. And it's a perfect segue into the Shannon stuff as well. We might just go to that question now, if you don't mind, because when I was researching yeah, yeah. this whole podcast and I was talking to people time and time again, I'm not just saying it because I'm talking to you, people talked about how excellent you were in the Shannon and what an important voice you were. I know, for instance, Fintan O'Toole was talking about what an own goal it was for them to kind of let you go in, in, insofar as they let you go. And I think he was quoted as saying that it was more important for the government parties to vote for one of their own than to place a single liberal unionist from Armagh in the Oireachtas. And I just wondered, did that experience of the Shannon put you off potentially United Ireland for life? <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, no, it, it certainly didn't because the experience in the Shannon was interesting because what it highlighted to me is the fact that we really have a job work to do to understand each other better, yeah. to respect other better to agree to disagree and look at in no way did the fallout of, of the Shannon election dampen my appetite to keep working to build bridges to unite people to unite people actually take across this island and, and between two islands and what you learn very quickly in politics is that politics doesn't often follow a straight path it's a bumpy road there's ups and downs there's twists yes. and there's, things always happen for a reason I believe 
So certainly I still have an appetite to do that work, to build those bridges to, as the late Seamus Mullen told me, to open minds and open doors. That's important because that's what a lot of this work is about, is opening doors and opening minds. And I still think even today, it's as important as it was in 2018 when I was elected to have a unionist voice in Dublin politics, to put a perspective on it, to give a different view and to represent a big cohort of people that very often feel unrepresented. Of course, it was something that just didn't make any sense in the spirit of building bridges. Whether there's going to be United Ireland or two jurisdictions working together, it just didn't make any sense. I kind of wonder then as well, the fact that you'd always been an independent candidate traditionally, but then you decided to become a member of the Ulster Unionist Party. I just wondered why you chose the Ulster Unionist Party as opposed, say, the DUP, and what are the values of the UUP that attracted you? And someone who didn't join a political party until fairly late in life, and there's a reason for that because... In a former life, when I was president of a farming union, in that position, you have to represent everyone, all political persuasions, all denominations. So you, you have to be seen to be completely fair and representative of an entire industry. So it wasn't appropriate and wouldn't have been appropriate to be involved heavily in, in party politics at that stage. It was then that when you look at the parties, you look across the spectrum of parties in Northern Ireland, the UUP is my natural fitness, my natural home because the UUP was always about respect, it was about positivity, about constructive, pragmatic politics. It was about working together. And now, I suppose especially more than ever under Doug Beatty, it's more than ever about this union of people. In fact, it's about the union of all people. And it's about creating space and about that respect for all opinions. So for me, the Ulster Union Party was the natural fit and it just made sense because it doesn't shy away from the fact that I'm very much pro-union. I believe that that's the right position for us at the moment and I'm Ulster Unionist. So I'm proud of that and I feel that no one should be shy or embarrassed or shy away from saying who they are and defining who they are. You're an Irish Republican, you're proud of that. Many others are and you're proud of that and you should be proud of that. And I think it's important to create the space that everybody can be proud of their identity without creating offence to anyone else. This is the million dollar question. And as I say, the whole union hangs on your shoulders right now (laughs) because I haven't had anybody (laughs) articulate the position so far. And I would love you to just sell why the union works. I've had many people talking about why a United Ireland is preferable. Why is a union preferable to United Ireland? You know, and I've heard this question asked many times and I've actually heard pretty one-dimensional answers to it, which has been a bit disappointing because for me, the union works because it's really the epitome of diversity and multiculturalism. It's about being English. It's about being Scotch. It's about being Northern Irish. It's about being Welsh and everything else that's in between. It's about the strength of working together between four jurisdictions in a nation of, of over 60 million people. It's about being global leaders in science and research, financial services. It's about being world leading in education, healthcare. And, you know, despite all the tensions that we've witnessed from the Brexit conversation that started, the UK is still hugely influential and it's respected globally. You know, for me, that's fundamentally what the union's about. And as I said earlier, you know, there are big problems within the UK. We recognise that. There are problems in the EU, but fundamentally it's about being part of this great union of people. And as we see times change and politics change and demographics change, 
I'm more assured that's something I want to be part of. And it makes, there is a, a great feeling when I travel to London, to Glasgow, to Cardiff, to Edinburgh, I feel I'm at home. And that's just what it means. And I suppose it's part of my DNA, my growing up, my upbringing and my identity. And, and that's what the union means to me. That's great. And I mean, I have nothing to counter that because it makes perfect sense. And the spirit of what you're saying is hopeful. I, of course, I have a different vision. I have a different view, but at least it's hopeful because what I got a lot when I was researching, particularly the Welsh and the Scottish situation, is that the conservative or unionist voices in those countries, the arguments that they make for the union can often be about fear. So they're often like, well, if, for instance, with Wales, if you leave, then you will economically collapse with Scotland, you'll have a hard border and there's going to be all these kind of checks and what are you going to do about your currency? And do you feel the unionist or the conservative needs to make more positive, constructive arguments rather than just what seems to be a little bit like fear mongering that goes on? There needs to be a positive message. There needs to be the advantage and the benefits and the merits of the union portrayed in a much better fashion. But I think there's one thing that's important it's a thing that COVID has actually flagged up. We're having lots of conversations at the moment through lots of different platforms about the constitutional question, about working together, about Brexit, about north-south versus east-west. I don't think that's particularly helpful because what I think COVID flagged up to all of us is that it's not helpful when it's north-south versus east-west. It's not helpful if we're comparing league tables of England versus Scotland versus Northern Ireland versus the Republic. Who's got more people vaccinated? Who's got more deaths? Who's got less deaths? That certainly has proved to be very unhelpful when we're managing right. the pandemic. And I think we learn from that that actually this binary of North, South versus East, West is helpful to no one. We live on two islands which are not going anywhere. We have two groups of people with multiple. So we actually need to work out how we work better together. I think that's really, really important because if we're serious with this conversation, and look, you're an Irish man, you're from Cork, but when you go to GB, there's over 6 million people subscribe as being Irish or of Irish descent. That's nearly yeah. a tenth of the population or, or, or of Irish descent and Irish connectivity. And that's really important because that makes me believe that the dynamic of East-West is equally as important as the Irish question of North-South. And I think we, you know, we need to keep that in our mind all the time. Yeah, I suppose we both share the same vision of people working together and people accepting each other. You don't want to see United Ireland. I understand that and I respect it completely. But if there was to be a United Ireland, what would have to happen to make someone like yourself feel comfortable and respected? And I know this is maybe a question that you don't want to answer, but sure, look, I'll throw it out in here. United Ireland is an interesting phrase in itself because remember, as a 53-year-old, who, grew, who was born in 1968, who grew up in the Troubles. United Ireland and the language around Irish is very emotive. It, yes. it, it sends out certain messages to certain people. It, it's very confrontational for many people. I think the important thing is when we have this conversation, let's sit down and have conversations with uniting people. Let's sit out, down and work out what, and I, I know it's going to be cliche, people use it, probably overuse it. Let's look at what unites us rather than divides us as people. Because actually we've lots of synergies and lots of things that actually do unite it. I think the question of Irish unity, it's more important that we look about uniting the people and that's North, South, East, West. I think that's really important. So ultimately this will not be decided by governments. This will be decided by the people. It's, it's enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement that it's the people in Northern Ireland will make this decision. 
if we give those people accurate, truthful information, if we tell them the reality of the situation, if we map out what the potential scenarios will look like if there is constitutional change, then I have no doubt that the people are intelligent enough, they have enough integrity to make a call on that themselves. So we could get married in this conversation now and actually get ahead of ourselves. I think it's much better to set out a platform where you create space for conversations and conversations that are open. Because if you define the end game before you have the conversation, then you actually probably exclude a lot of people from the conversation. So it's important to have an open conversation, but to keep an open mind on this, because it was quite interesting. I was at a function or at an event yesterday in Belfast with a group of young people discussing exactly the thing. And one of the questions that I asked them was about the ability to, to keep an open mind to some point in time, consider that maybe could they subscribe to or agree with the other opinion? And it was interesting to see their reaction to that because they felt that if the, the situation was set out on, on either side of this conversation, that they could still be open to being convinced that there might be a better way. So I think it's important to keep the open mind and focus on uniting people north, south, east and west. And let's see where that takes us. Not to bring it back to the to my viewpoint yet again, but just listening to you, I'm kind of thinking to myself, I well, I feel that we can do all that in a version of a united Ireland, and I understand how loaded that term is, of course, in a shared Ireland. I feel that we can do that and respect people who have identities that aren't the same as ourselves, respect people's Britishness. And I suppose you feel that we can do that and it doesn't necessarily have to be a United Ireland, it could be two jurisdictions. And that's fair enough. I'd love to get your sense of where unionism needs to go then. I mean, obviously you believe that the Ulster Unionist Party is driving it in a more progressive avenue and that's where it needs to go. Would you say that unionism is in a difficult spot right now? And if so, where does it need to go? And I presume you would say that the Ulster Unionist Party is the party to bring it there. Brexit has really a lot of challenges down to everybody and I suppose when we look at the Brexit conversation and I remember back in 2016 when we were having the, the conversation post the referendum that there's a lot of noise made about the fact that effectively Brexit would hasten and fast track Irish unity and I think that, that it's been really interesting because sometimes I believe that the Brexit conversation and the constitutional conversation have been a bit mixed up and muddled up together. I think they're two separate things. Brexit has been a game changer as regards relationships between London and Dublin and Dublin and Belfast. Those relationships have changed and there's no question those relationships will change. But I just think that if we create enough space for people to have a conversation and be proud of their identity and we start to make reasoned, rational arguments whatever those are, for either your position tied with Irish unity, for my position that's a pro-union position, then I think that's a much healthier place to be. And I do believe that Brexit, for all its downsides, and look, I, I still believe I can't see many benefits of Brexit. I, I stand by that. I don't think the sky is going to fall in as a consequence of Brexit. I think the UK is a big, strong economy. I think that, that we would get through this this turbulence at the moment, I think that there'll be a degree of pragmatism and a vision to guide us through this. But what I do think we need, need leaders, we need strong leaders, we need cool heads in this situation at the moment. And for unionism, that must be about respect. It must be about inclusivity. It must not be about a siege mentality. 
and, and fighting with everyone. So I think that where politics is at the moment, we have an opportunity. I firmly believe, Tag, that everything has a time and there's a right time for everything. And I think we're moving into a time now where there's a right time to have mature conversations. There's a right time to recognise that we can all look back at the past and, the, and what's happened, the difficult time we've had in Northern Ireland, across the island of Ireland, between the two islands. But actually, if we aren't understand that and start to learn from that and not repeat those mistakes, I think we're in a, a time now where there's a cohort of young people, anyone under the age of 35 who's coming on, who's getting involved, who's, who's bringing up their family or getting involved in politics. Here's a cohort of people that didn't live through the troubles. Here's a cohort of people that want the best for their family, for their kids, for the future. My children who are in their early 20s actually see the troubles as a period that they don't really understand yeah. and they never want to revisit that. When I'm talking as part of my political work with former combatants in loyalism and in republicanism, most of those people are now grandparents. All of those people never want to see us go back to those days. Lots of those people have regrets and, and have remorse about what happened. Mm. But the one thing they're all resolute about is they never want to see that kind of an upbringing for their grandchildren. I think that presents us with a really, really unique opportunity where we can concentrate in the future, look forward, but being cognizant of what we've came through. And I think that if we take that as a platform to build on for the political structures in Northern Ireland about inclusivity, about respect, about diversity, I'm actually very positive about the future. And I think that it's quite easy to sling mud at politicians and the political structures but actually, the vast majority of people in there are there for the right reasons and to do the right things. And, and believe you me, Tag, it's a, it's a blood sport. There's something <laughs> to lately in Northern Ireland, especially because it is a blood sport. But it's a good, filled with good people. Great. I only have a couple of questions left. I don't want to keep you too much longer. And for listeners, I've already kind of ruined this man's morning anyway with like about 15 or 20 minutes worth of technical difficulties. I just have two questions. Left. One, I suppose, would be, do you find yourself cringing at the kind of the harder, more fundamentalist loyalist voices? Because sometimes down south, we don't get as many of the kind of, I would say, more moderate progressive voices as yourself. Sometimes the more harder, more bam pot voices like seem to be the loudest. Would you have anything to say on that? Because it seems like they're getting too much of the room a lot of the time. And I, I wonder what the effect is on the general person's impression of loyalism, unionism. I suppose, and it goes back maybe to something we touched on briefly earlier, that I see a big cohort of people in loyalism that are in a difficult position just at the moment because of the consequence of Brexit, all the conversation about a protocol. And I think it's really, really important to understand the sensitivities across those communities because fundamentally if people think that no one's hearing them or if people think that no one's listening to them well then you create instability and insecurity i think sometimes these groups of people are caricatured very unfairly in the sometimes in press and media and across social media as being very narrow very regressive not visionaries I think that's very unfair because I think that caricature doesn't represent those communities. And I say, if they feel that no one's listening to them, then that creates insecurity. I think sometimes there's fun poked at some of these communities and they're portrayed in a certain fashion. I think that's very often coming from a position of misunderstanding by the people that are doing that. Because I think we've got a brilliant ability in Northern Ireland and across the island to laugh at ourselves. And that's really important because actually through the really dark days of the Troubles, that was really important, that ability to see sometimes a very dark humour that, that we had. 
But what's more important is the ability to laugh with each other and not at each other. There's a fundamental difference in that. So if we can laugh together with each other at the situation rather than laughing at each other, I think, you know, it's important. Those communities, as I say, it's a really difficult time. And, you know, if we go back a few weeks ago, something like the presidential visit to Armagh for a church service, the presidential visit that didn't happen yes. to Armagh was really interesting because what that flagged up to me, the depth of feeling we have across the island and the emotion that the baggage that goes with all of these conversations. What it said to me was, I can see unionism and loyalism who really don't understand the sensitivity and the depth of feeling about the partition of the island. Mm. They don't understand that nationalists and Republicans feel so emotive and so passionate about the fact that the partition for them was wrong. But the flip side of that is that I also see within nationalism and republicanism that they don't get the depth of feeling that Northern unionism and loyalism have about the connection to the UK, about the crown, about their Britishness, about about the fact that for the last 100 years, Northern Ireland is this brilliant wee place that we all call home. And we feel very, very strongly, very passionately about. So I think that when we look at these portrayals sometimes of these communities, you've got to understand the sensitivity and you've got to understand if they feel that people aren't listening to them and are in some cases laughing at them, well then you will elicit a reaction that maybe doesn't show them in the best light or reflect the good people that they are. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. I really, really enjoyed this. We're just coming to the last question now, and it's just a kind of a crystal ball kind of question that I'm asking everybody. Ultimately, Brexit, what will be the constitutional consequences, if any? So give me 10 years in in the future, give me 20 years. What do you think? Will the union stay or will Scotland, Wales go free and will there be a United Ireland? Massive question to finish with. So so are we standing for another two hours? (laughs) Brexit has been a huge phenomenon in our lifetimes. No one ever envisaged that we'd be in this position. We are, and we can't, we can't wind back the clock. Brexit will change and has changed those relationships, and that's important to be aware of that. But Brexit will pass. We will get through this. That as we look at the demographics and the politics, that we're looking at the nationalism and the, the, the politics of nationalism across the UK and in Ireland and across other parts of the world, is changing. I think that we're looking at multiculturalism everywhere. I think that as we look at the change in the UK and Ireland to a more secular society, as we look at the changing position that that religion plays for lots of people, and and that's not to diminish or take away from the importance of religion for many people, because it is hugely important for many people on all sides of this question. But I think that, that we look at multiculturalism, we look at diversity, we look at the demographics changing and we move farther away from the troubles era. I think people are looking at this differently. People genuinely now are waking up in the mornings and not maybe thinking about the constitutional question. They think about jobs, they think about houses, they think about the education of their kids. Goodness knows in the last two years, we've all thought more about travel with the COVID pandemic and we've looked at that. We're thinking about things like climate change, sustainability. So I think that the important thing is that even though we have a changing dynamic between the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic, between Ireland and and the UK, that the important thing is that we will all need to be working together to sit down and have mature grown-up conversations about relationships. We're in a global marketplace now. 
our businesses and our companies trade across jurisdictions across borders. That's been the benefit of Europe is the friction, the seamless trading. We need to work to get to that to mean that companies can trade, people can travel, we can work together side by side and have conversations without creating tension while we're still being respectful to each other. Because as I said earlier on, you ain't going anywhere, Tag. I ain't going anywhere. Let's work together for a greater good for everybody. Well, I couldn't possibly end the interview any better than that. Ian Marshall, thank you so, so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, it's been a pleasure also. Well, guys, how'd you get on with that one? I tell you, I was kind of half regretting platforming Ian Marshall there, to be honest, halfway through re-listening to that, because I'm like, he makes the union sound quite nice. You're like, hmm, is this United Ireland thing a bit divisive, really? Is it we're just, we're, we kick it down the road? I do, but jest. I still have my strong beliefs, but I have to say it was just wonderful to chat to him generally. But also, as I say, he's actually got a vision for what he would like the union to be like. It doesn't involve leaving people behind. It doesn't involve othering people. This is my clan and this is your clan and the rest of you can go to pot, which kind of feels a bit like the way the Tory government are kind of running the whole show at the moment. But anyway, that's a side issue. So Ian has not convinced me to join the Ulster Unionist Party in the same way that Neil Richmond didn't even come close to convincing me to join Fine Gael. But I would put the two of them in the same bracket, if that was okay to say, insofar as they're both extremely open, honest, generous with their time, engaging, interesting people to talk to, and that's where it's all won and lost, really. They're the people I want to be talking to anyway, to be honest, and whether we end up in two jurisdictions or some version of a shared, unified Ireland, I'm not going to say that that's irrelevant. It's certainly not irrelevant to me because I know what I want and I'm comfortable enough with what I want, and I'm also respectful and comfortable with people who don't want it. But there can only be a meaningful shared Ireland with the type of approach that Ian and Neil personify, in my view. And that's the most important thing. He's talking about uniting people more than breaking down physical borders or ripping up constitutions. And I think that's pretty cool, actually. So that's it, guys, really. You know, we've kind of come to the end of the road till I don't break down do you know that kind of thing as well that kind of all the singing is kind of up at the top of the kind of nose in the internal nose market so I think we're really missing that as well like I, I don't know all the new singing just I don't know I don't like new stuff really having said all that guys it's been a dream it's been a dot it's been real cool it's been nice what have we learned? What, what answers do, do I have for you? Nothing. I think the Scottish independence thing, the latest polls as I am going gonna to turn this off now pretty soon and things change so quickly as you know, the latest polls for Scottish independence, support for independence are in around 55%. Wales is around 32% and as I said before, if Scotland goes that will increase dramatically. In terms of Irish unity, those conversations are happening up and down the country all over the island every event Irish Unity event I attend you get new people there that you're like oh my god I can't believe that guy's here and I think that's interesting it's not just the usual suspect shouting from the rooftop so guys I'm going to leave you at that really it's sad to let you go but I'm always here for you my number will be at the end of the podcast ring me straight away if there's any trouble during the night or anything like that mind yourselves before I go go one final thank you to all my wonderful guests, all 15 of you. I can't believe I got you and I loved it. 
a massive thank you to Go Loud inside the Boer media scene there, especially D Ready. She's an absolute superstar and she's been putting up with me and my technical errors for nearly six months now. Sure, God love her. A big, massive thanks to, of course, my producer, my manager, my everything, Claire O'Connell. As the old phrase goes, behind every middling man is a magnificent woman. And Claire, you are that woman. And the final thanks, (laughs) surprise, surprise, is to you, the bloody well listener. Until next time, my friends. So, but I bet you wish you were here. Bet you wish you were here.